Welcome to Goodwill Hunters. Here, we'll explore the ultimate question, how to use profits for purpose. It's been said business must help solve the global challenges we face. In this podcast, we explore how. How can the private and not-for-profits work better together? What truly constitutes aid and progress? And how can we transform international development? Here, we talk with the thought leaders, the game changers, the intellectuals, and the campaigners. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, and this is Goodwill Hunters. Hello, and welcome to episode 30 of Goodwill Hunters. Today on the show, we have Kat Romer-Greer. Now, I read about Kat in the Sydney Uni Alumni magazine and immediately had to reach out to her to have her on the show. So, a little bit about Kat before we start. Uh, Kat is the founder of the travelling art festival Micro Galleries. Starting from the chaotic precincts of her base in Hong Kong in 2013, Kat's aim was for people to stumble over art. That's where they begin to shift their perceptions and believe they should have access to art as well. Since then, Micro Galleries has exhibited everywhere from Kathmandu to Cape Town using local and international artists to blur the line between street art and fine art and bring a sense of wonder to unexpected, often disused and neglected spaces. If that isn't the most intriguing bio, I don't know what is. Kat, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for inviting me. It's fantastic to be talking to you. Now, how does it feel to be a Sydney Uni alumni magazine uh, star? (laughs) (laughs) Bizarrely invoking pride, actually, (laughs) which I didn't anticipate, to be honest. But I genuinely had such a fantastic uh, time there as a postgrad and met so many incredible academics and and people that it it was one of the more positive uh, academic experiences that I'd had. So it was really amazing to be featured by them. Yeah, it's it's funny. I have been out of Sydney Uni for well, maybe five years now. Um, I did my undergrad there and I still get so excited to receive this magazine because it's consistently full of amazing people like yourself. And I, I like I honestly, I could find my podcast guests exclusively from the magazine, I think. I honestly believe that could be the case and it would make for a fantastic podcast series. Perhaps we should pitch it to them. Yeah. Uh, But like all of the incredible uh, graduates that I worked with when I was there are still doing the most phenomenal things and, and are an excellent source of inspiration always for me. So it's, it's a great resource. Yeah, it's a fantastic place to have studied. It really is. Yeah, yeah. Now, okay, so let's start with 2013. Can you take us back to 2013 when you started Micro Galleries and walk us through uh, why you began this journey? Sure. Uh, Well, 2013 was uh, a little bit before the Umbrella Revolution here in Hong Kong, which I think now upon reflection was was important. I think it demonstrated there was a bit of an energy for change here in a city that was previously quite regimented and restricted in a lot of ways. And public art particularly was exceptionally controlled by the government and and developers. Um, And in Hong Kong, uh, property is at such a premium that that for artists it's very difficult to find space not only to exhibit but to even develop their practice. And uh, so I really felt the change coming from Sydney uh, in 2010 and moving to Hong Kong. I felt that shift and I felt that lack of, excuse me, lack of opportunity for artists. 
And so in 2013, another incredible Australian woman, Bess Hepworth, who's a huge LGBTQ plus advocate, as well as an advocate for positive change for minority groups across the board, uh, was running a TEDx Happy Valley, as well as Radical Resilience Week here in Hong Kong. And she wanted a creative component to the festival that she was developing and commissioned me to come up with something. Uh, and in Hong Kong, they like to do things a little last minute, fly a bit close to disaster, <laughs> I've noticed. Uh, and as an Australian, I like a bit of lead in time. So with four weeks and a very small budget, she wanted me to come up with something that reflected this idea of radical resilience. So going back to my interest in how art was quite restricted for people here in Hong Kong, which does give the appearance of being an exceptionally wealthy city, but actually has a lot of people living in rather restricted circumstances and um, some pretty reasonable poverty, actually. Uh, and that sits in stark contrast to the very pristine kind of white cube galleries and the high-level commercial art world that's here. I wanted to put the art on the streets uh, with the very people who I think deserved it and needed it the most in this town. So we went to an area that was um, about to sort of be gentrified. The developers had started picking up on the space, but it was this beautiful little inner city village. And we wanted to capture not only the art uh, that was happening around the space, uh, but also bring in international artists and also platform the community as, as a work of art in a way itself. And so I reached out to all of my international connections and just asked them if they we had no money, so would they like to send over some artwork? And what we ended up doing is merging street art and fine art and placing them side by side right on the doorstep of the people in this amazing community called Tinhao. And uh, we, yeah, made these series of laneways into a little micro kind of street art festival. And that was our response to Radical Resilience Week at the time surprisingly, we kind of thought it was a bit of a one-off thing, myself and a few friends who pulled it together at this kind of rapid pace. Uh, and it was so popular and so well-received by the local community and visitors that we just got asked to do it again and again, and it snowballed into this thing where now I'm an accidental, almost artistic director and curator of this global initiative. Wow, what a cool story. That sounds Thanks. amazing. Yeah, wow. Um, I'm going to have to ask you to roll back a second, though. What was the Umbrella Revolution? I think I might be missing some of the historical context here. Uh, okay, so as you would definitely know, um, the UK handed back Hong Kong to China and there was a 50-year agreement. Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm not the best person to talk about the details of this, but I'll give you my bullet points. <laughs> Please do. I, I understand them. <laughs> we'll fumble through Chinese politics together. Uh, so, <laughs> what a night. <laughs> a, a light subject. Yeah, so yeah, what a night. <laughs> Rock and roll. So, uh, yeah, so uh, one of the agreements was that uh, by 2017, please fact check this, by 2017, uh, China would permit Hong Kong to have universal suffrage and they would be able to vote for their leader. Unfortunately, uh, the options that were rolled out by Beijing kind of gave a nod to that agreement, but they weren't really facilitating that. So what Beijing were doing were putting forward their preferred leaders. 
that and the way the political system works here is quite different to Australia. But you can, everybody here can vote for a certain level um, and then like a pyramid, fewer and fewer people vote for the next person higher up. And so what was actually happening is a very small pool of elected uh, people were able to elect a select person that Beijing had put forward. So whoever was put forward was going to be pro-Beijing. And that uh, kind of resulted in a very bizarre story where a a group of students uh, got together. This was all happening around the same time as the Occupy movements. So there was also an Occupy Hong Kong movement. And so a group of students um, got out into the streets to peacefully protest. Um, And weirdly, I ran straight into them running for my ferry. And I look back now and think that was the most exceptional privilege. And I also think it really set the tone of the whole incredible protest that went on after that because uh, I sort of said to them, what are you doing? Because it was so unusual to see something like this happening. And they said, we're about to be tear gassed. What are you doing? And I'm like, I'm running for my ferry. And so they got around with me. They had all these umbrellas and were wrapping themselves in cling wrap. And they put up all these umbrellas and walked me out of the immediate scene. So I didn't get affected by any immediate reaction to any tear gas that was about to happen. And then unfortunately, the police made a very bad move and tear gassed them. And it played out so badly in the media that the whole community came out, well, not the whole, a larger percentage than ever seen before, I suspect, of the community came out into the streets of Hong Kong and blockaded some of the main artery streets in the main areas of Hong Kong for, again, I'm not very good with detail, I think it was something like 93 days, which is unbelievable. And it was the most spectacular protests I've ever been involved with. I'm sure people will study them in years to come. It was peaceful. It was well organized. They had rows of tents that were numbered. They had cleaning rosters for the toilets and the pathways. The lecturers would come out after teaching at university and lecture the kids, the students in the streets so that they didn't get behind in their studies, which obviously is very important in Hong Kong. But very interestingly, also from my perspective, outside of the political component, is that it's the flourishing of public art in Hong Kong like I'd not seen before. So spontaneous, organic, deeply meaningful and very, um, very political and and, and very, uh, very shocking, actually, for Hong Kong, which can feel like a bit of an apathetic place in some ways. And since then, there's been a lot of political repercussions for people in Hong Kong, including many of the protesters who led the protests have recently been jailed for their part in the protests. So it's an incredibly serious situation here for many of the youth in Hong Kong who want to see uh, freedom of speech and creativity maintained um, and also a level of um, autonomy from China, which is slowly decreasing. Wow. Well, I, for one, feel terrible that I've never heard of this and I'll certainly be uh, looking into that further because it does sound like an incredible protest. It visually and um, just in terms of its existence and how it played out, I think is one of the most important protests of our time, for sure. So I think you've you've touched on a really cool point there. And before I ask you this, I think I should let our listeners know that you're at home in Hong Kong right now, which is possibly why there's a bird noise in the background. Is the bird on your <laughs> side or is it on my side? <laughs> I, I uh, and not many listeners will probably know this about Hong Kong because the visuals usually of, you know, these massive skyscrapers and intense uh, overpopulation. But I very fortunately, I think, uh, live on an island in Hong Kong with beaches and trees and mountains and yes birds if you can believe it 
Uh, How beautiful. It sounds great. It sounds great. (laughs) I'm crossing into the territory of of David Attenborough maybe in this episode (laughs) with the background bird noises. Um, I, I for one, am embracing it. Now, um, so what I was going to say there, I think I think you've touched on a really interesting point there on how um, art can mirror politics in really unexpected ways. And when we're looking at signs of the political situation that a particular place might be, and often we can look to the street art to understand that better. Um, so when did you first pick up on that on that trend and and how have you witnessed it unfold in Hong Kong? Ah, okay. So I think, um, not to reference the umbrella, umbrella revolution too much, but I feel like I, I saw the power of art and the way it could change people's perceptions over what was happening throughout that protest that definitely solidified it for me. But I think, uh, because, uh, I've traveled a lot, I've been really fortunate and been able to travel to a lot of really amazing places throughout the world. And what I saw continuously was that the street art present in those places was an excellent litmus test to the political climate of the area, what people were doing about it, and the level of um, access people had to art. And so I feel like it also was an opportunity for so many artists who don't get an opportunity to freely exhibit because the commercial art scene is quite restrictive and exclusive in many ways that the streets provided a very open canvas for people to express themselves in ways that they might not otherwise be able to, and in turn that the community then had access to a lot of incredible information and different perceptions that they might not either have that ability to access on their own or also we have to factor in the feeling that they might not feel as if they can access it or that their opinion on artwork is valid or that they have any understanding of it. Um, I think in so many of our cultures, art is seen as such an elitist highbrow practice uh, that they feel like they don't have the skills to engage with and unpack it and have an interpretation of it that's meaningful for them. And so I feel like street art certainly bridged a lot of those um, perceptions about what art is and what politics is and what political discussions could be. And also then tagging onto that as well is the ownership of public space. Who owns it? We get so many messages um, daily from uh, the government, from developers, from advertising. And how much control do we have over the information we're receiving? Uh, And I feel like street art is a break in that constant messaging that's always trying to get us to, to buy something or think a certain way. And instead, it's a process of inquiry or revelation. Uh, and 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 a reclamation of our environments. Yeah, keep talking. That that's so interesting. Great. Oh, great. Okay. <laughs> uh, so, I think your question was, uh, when was a moment where I really felt the power of that? Okay. Um, I think for me, uh, the the first thing that I ever saw actually was when I was traveling in Portugal. Weirdly, and I don't, I've never told this story before. And uh, obviously, this was right at the beginning of Europe, sort of starting to move into a a place of austerity. And um, the first thing to go in times of austerity often is the arts. It's seen as a a very dispensable practice for a a community, which I wholeheartedly disagree with. I actually think that's when it's needed more than anything. Uh, Well, obviously medicine's quite good too, but, you know, as a cultural practice. And 
I noticed that in a lot of the derelict buildings or where people could no longer afford to keep building their houses or houses had been abandoned and spaces and communities had been abandoned, the street artists had come in and and reclaimed those spaces with dynamic artworks and changed them from these kind of scary spaces that were quite depressing into something a little bit more exciting and dynamic and a place people wanted to be. And then that idea has also echoed throughout all of the projects that I've worked on. So one uh, moment that comes to mind is we reclaimed uh, a lane in Dempasar in Bali. Now, Bali is really well known, obviously, particularly to Australians as a tourist destination and as somewhere to go to the beaches and have a beer and hang out with your mates. But no one ever goes to Dempasar, despite the fact that's where you fly in and out of. And this is how real people in Bali actually live. Uh, in in this densely populated, highly polluted, very hot, um, dusty uh, city. And so we spent a lot of time there and reclaimed uh, a lane. And at the end, uh, a young guy, he must have been about 13, came up to us and said, oh, this has been really amazing. Actually, this lane was really scary to walk down at night, but now it's like really amazing and we get excited about coming down here and looking at everything. So it's only a small, a small change, but for someone who's 13 and wants to enjoy their community, I think it's it's a really meaningful change. It It is, and that was so heartwarming to listen to. Wow. <laughs> I, I, I'm interested, what has this this journey been like for you as an artist because I imagine that you were an artist before 2013 and then you've transitioned into quite a new way of conceptualizing art what's that been like for you personally well it's been rather a bizarre journey actually uh because I started off as a vocalist and then at university uh my undergraduate uh degree was actually in creative arts in theater performance and Uh, that's probably where the transition from a more classical style of uh, performing uh, began because I started developing through that course my own work and, and we really were taught that you know, you don't need to wait for people to provide you creative opportunities that you can actually generate your own creative content. Um, From there, I actually then uh, became the manager of Packed Centre for Emerging Artists in Sydney, which is a really amazing alternative uh, art space for performance art, and really found a connection to performance art and began uh, to collaborate and work in a more multidisciplinary fashion and, and in a bit more of an exploratory way. So moving outside of prescribed text or music and moving into looking at how we can use a whole range of different creative practices to create new ideas and explore topics in new ways. Then when uh, I moved to Hong Kong, uh, there wasn't such a strong culture where that was happening, particularly in the English-speaking world. Though there's very exciting stuff happening in the Cantonese-speaking world. It's obviously hard to, to go in uh, and, and access some of that. And as Hong Kong was a colonised space, there's also kind of this feeling of perhaps we, we need to step away from being involved in that. So there's a cultural reclamation for them as well. So uh, I really started to indulge in my other just personal um, passion, which is visual arts. And then accidentally, as you heard um, earlier on in the discussion, accidentally fell into creating a visual arts project. Uh, And it's since snowballed from there into me being the artistic director and leading groups of, of visual and other artists. And that feels like a very bizarre accident. And 
sometimes I certainly question whether or not I should be doing that. But what I have learned from this process is that I think if you believe in what you're doing enough and you have enough passion and you gather the right people around you to support you and, and you're willing to learn, then anything is possible and you can create some really amazing things. And you have clearly, which is, I hope so. (laughs) Um, I think, I think so. I think what I find really interesting about what you're talking about is the connection between people and their space. And you asked the question, who who owns public space? Um, which is a particularly pertinent question in a lot of developing countries where, as you said, developers come in and take over space that has always been owned informally by local communities. And I guess for me, I've got two degrees in anthropology now. Um, And admittedly, when I started studying this field, I didn't know what anthropology was. And eight years later, I feel very passionate about it. And I think (laughs) that anthropology is the basis for a lot of the work that we do in international development. And it's really vital to understand how people relate to space and how people conceptualize the spaces around them. So I guess on that note, in in the places that you've worked, how do you see people build a connection and a sense of belonging to their space through art? Yes, so one of the uh, things that emerge from doing microgalleries, so what I have found by doing a project like microgalleries is that there have been many unexpected interests and outcomes for myself um, and purposes for the project that have evolved and this concept of public space certainly is one of them particularly because microgalleries focuses on people in developing communities. And developing communities quite often compared to the more developed spaces we obviously grew up in connect with public space in very different ways. So you mentioned before it's often quite an informal space and might be owned by someone, but for generations that space has been where the kids all hang out and learn to, to play drums and, and and run through and play tag in or uh, the men and the women convene of, of an evening uh, to, to talk to each other and to connect and, and help each other look after their children. So what I have seen is these spaces slowly be overtaken uh, by developers or by people who, particularly because a lot of the spaces we go into are spaces on the cusp of change. So, for example, we've been to Jakarta and we spend time, usually nine months to a year, talking and getting to know a community. We really want to know about the community and ingrain ourselves in the space and respond to their specific needs and requirements, not just use their space as a festival ground or a canvas. And so over that period of time of getting to know them and speaking to them and visiting them, we often see the space change and the political climate change and shift a lot as well. And so what we particularly do is we try not to touch the established spaces that they are frequenting. We want to work within and around those spaces. So if there's a communal space where people, for example, gather in of an evening, we don't want to overtake that space with artwork unless we've been requested to or it's a collaborative engagement with the community. So, for example, we've done things like have free little libraries built for a space in Jakarta so that the children who are frequenting this little laneway area um, They quite often don't have access to books or to comics, which is a really great way to communicate with them. And so we we commissioned a little library to be built there. So we might do something like that, crossing over um, art and something a bit more functional for them and useful for them. But then uh, there's public spaces that are used for things that we think could transition into a more positive outcome. So Jakarta provides another great example where 
we have an opening night within the community when we we launch the festival to bring artists into an unusual community they don't normally visit, but also to ensure that the community get to meet artists and feel like they're being honoured for having us there. And in Jakarta, the only space um, was what we had been told was a banana field. And when we arrived, it indeed did have bananas, uh, but it was also the uh, rubbish tip for the whole community and had been for a very long time. And by that, I mean that they literally walk through and throw their rubbish in a pile that then a gentleman from the community would burn every evening. And we had about four days to transition that into what had sort of been pitched as a bit of a garden party event where we'd had bands and live performers coming uh, in. And so over a period of four days, um, what we did was we cleared it out. We decorated it. We brought in pallets to level the ground. Um, we brought in lights. We brought in equipment. We brought in a whole range of things. The artists all banded together to decorate the space using recycled materials. The kids got really involved. Um, the women of the community were fantastic and were helping us put up artworks. And it really transitioned um, this, this field that had been used for burning rubbish into a space that the children could access and play in, they could gather in, and that the whole community could come together and enjoy for an evening. Uh, a big learning curve for us was thinking we'd done this um, kind of spectacular job of transforming, a, a, you know, this rubbish tip into this amazing space. And, of course, what we didn't realise or take the time to learn and have to take ownership of was if we removed that space, we really did need to provide another way for them to dispose of their rubbish because their local government doesn't provide that. And so, of course, upon our departure, it returned to being um, a space where they dumped their rubbish. So the people's connect, even though we thought that connection to the space was, was quite a negative thing, it was an essential thing for them. And though we transitioned it in a positive way um, for a moment, it of course transitioned back because we didn't come up with a more sustainable solution to that issue. But just around uh, the corner from that space, um, some of the artworks are still up and still being taken care of with pride by the community. So one of the big projects that we uh, have developed over the last two years within micro galleries is uh, called Women on the Wall. Uh, we notice in a lot of the communities we visit that the women quite often are invisible and not directly engaging with us. We spend a lot of time speaking to the men of the community and if we run workshops, it's young boys that are present within the workshops. So trying to bring the women out and find a connection with them and have them contribute in a collaborative way to what we're doing has become very important. And in Jakarta, it was um, a rocky start. We were in a very devout Muslim community who were wonderful, but it was very difficult um, to connect with the women and it was very difficult for the community to understand a lot of the international artists that were, were coming into the space. It was quite overwhelming for them. And uh, one piece of advice that we received from an Indonesian artist that we were collaborating with was to try and talk to the women, to connect with the women and see if we could get them involved. So we introduced them to this Women on the Wall project and the women, once they were provided a platform and an opportunity to be involved, changed the whole tone of the project and the whole vibe of the public space that we were working in. So it went from this feeling of nervousness and hostility and uncertainty kind of being presented by the men to the women deciding that this was a very exciting project that they'd been empowered 
to be part of. And so therefore the children then felt really excited and became much more involved. And therefore the men of the community decided that they were now going to buy into the project. And so by the time the Women on the Wall project was launched and the women had all sort of been involved in developing the visual that was going to go on this mural on a wall and they were all handed paints and paintbrushes, it felt like in this tiny little laneway in this public space, I think there must have been about 100 community members and women painting and everybody's so excited to be there. And that mural still is there even now. So it was a real, I think, reclamation of space for them. And then about three hours after the mural had been painted, we'd sort of turned around and with the leftover paint, a few of the women in the community had brought out items from their house and had started using the leftover paint to paint designs on these items in their house and do little murals and, and little, you know, fantastic visual moments on the walls outside their house and started creating themselves. So I think in some ways there's there's negative and positive ways that they're engaging in the space and all of them are really important and not for us to judge. But I think the most important message from from those stories for me was if you provide people with a way to access their own space in a creative way and then hand them the empowerment and the reins to do so, that's a pretty amazing gift that we can sort of hand over to them and let them run with it. Wow. Oh, my gosh. What an amazing story. That That's incredible. And, you know, the quote that I was reminded of when you were saying that is um, – that so much of development is about giving people a platform to tell their own stories rather than telling their stories for them. And when we give people platforms to tell their own stories, the empowerment that comes with that, you know, is, is boundless. Like it can lead to so much. And I think that you've really exemplified that now. Can I ask, is this, am I presenting any form of clarity? Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. Great. Cause I get halfway through and I'm like, I'm pretty sure I'm ranting, but yeah. Okay. Great. <laughs> no, you are. You are. This is good questions. You're asking unusual questions. Actually, you should answer the same like 30 questions. So nice work. <laughs> I get that a lot, actually. Um, It shows you how my brain works. Um, I think the example of Jakarta is a really, really good one as well. I went to Jakarta for the first time for work last October. And it was really funny. Like, I've been to Bali like every single other Australian and um, had never (laughs) really – I'd never entertained the thought of going to Jakarta. I'd never really heard of it. Um, it, it didn't, you know, I kind of just thought, oh, okay, this is where I'm going for work. And so many people said to me, oh my God, that's awful. Like, oh, you poor thing, you poor thing having to go there. And I was like, it's amazing. Yeah. And I got there and I loved it. Um, I, I really, really enjoyed my time there, not least because they've got a thriving cafe culture, which I didn't expect. Great (laughs) coffee, right? (laughs) Yes. Really good coffee. And also, um, it was actually the local art and culture and how incredibly visible that was that, that I found really inspiring. So I think that's a really good example of where a place synonymous for urban sprawl um, is actually a really unique artistic hub and you've managed to bring that out. Yeah, we actually also, just as a quick aside, had um, one of our more interesting kind of micro moments, micro injections, we call them, when um, the Jakarta bombings happened. So on one of my first visits to Jakarta to develop this project, um, I landed and the very next day uh, the Starbucks was bombed. And 
then I believe like it was something like six months later. So being there and experiencing that and speaking to locals in the moment as it happened around the corner from where we were staying, um, you know, talking to taxi drivers and them saying, aren't you scared? Why are you still here? And I'm like, aren't you scared? Like, this is your home. And they're like, yeah, we're terrified. We're terrified for our children, but it's our home and we're, we're not going to hand it over. And then I think it was something like six months later, we were very close to the community by this point and the artists we were working with and another bombing happened. And it was really devastating and heartbreaking for the Indonesians that we were working with. Their, their, their city was transforming so quickly and in a way they felt they had no control over. And so Micro Galleries ran a um, last-minute crowdfunding campaign and within 24 hours had enough money to commission five Indonesian street artists to get as close to the bombing site as they could and put up um, murals and artworks of resilience and messages from the world, you know, saying, you know, we see you and we're behind you and, and don't give up. And a key image that we ended up using for Micro Galleries Jakarta came from that, that um that fantastic war image of the woman holding her bicep. Um, yeah, so one of the guys actually, an artist called Wacky OK, transformed that into um, uh, Jakarta is this strong image. And it was a really powerful thing. And, and it got a lot of global attention, actually, this particular small project, which was incredibly exciting for the artists and really injected the artists and the community we were working with with a lot of hope and excitement that the global community actually cared about them. Yeah, wow, that would have been so powerful. Why, why is it? Great, I, actually, yeah. I, I often notice this, that in the wake of a terrible, whether it be natural disaster or, uh, or other emergency, it's not only does it consistently produce the absolute best in people, but it also seems to produce a surge of creativity and art and new forms of expression. And I wonder, is that because people feel that they can't express themselves with words because, you know, often in those situations, the emotions are just are too much to be expressed in words. And so we turn to art. I, I think there's definitely something to what you're saying. I, I think we see it again and again, as mentioned earlier, the, the best and most exciting public art transformation in Hong Kong happened during these protests where the youth of this country were, were fighting for their, their rights and, and freedom. And I think in the countries like uh, spaces like Jakarta, where I've been, and, and recently in Nepal, so we're talking, I think, three years after the earthquake and the damage is all still so present and so visible. And yet this incredible art scene in Kathmandu, these beautiful murals and beautiful artworks and some of the most exciting, politically aware and dynamic art that I, I've seen anywhere in the world, all happening because I think people can't necessarily voice uh, some of the emotions and the feelings they have about what's happening to them, their country, their community, their society, but also they're not provided an opportunity, a platform or resources to enable them to do it in any other way. And so they quite often take to the streets, as we were mentioning earlier, it's free, it's accessible, and it has an exceptionally large audience that are potentially going to be very responsive. But also the psychology behind it is that people, the way, when you engage with art, a different part of your brain comes into action and you're able to um, engage in incredibly difficult, uh, abstract, intangible subjects in a way that can provoke meaning and emotion and storytelling and placemaking. And this is a very empowering 
way to communicate that also has been proven to have long-term effects in generating change and generating um, excitement within people to actually go ahead and look more into these subjects or these ideas. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Can you tell us a bit about your work in Kathmandu? I love Nepal. It's one of my favourite yes, topics. I am very in love with Nepal now. It's a little bit scary. <laughs> like, uh, what an incredible place. So obviously, again, what we try to do with micro galleries and our other um, projects within uh, the micro galleries concept is to go to places that are off the beaten track. So for example, we go to Denpasar and, and not to better known areas of Bali. We go to um, a, a township in Cape Town, not to a, a town by the beach in Cape Town. And so uh, in Nepal, I thought it was really important that we don't just see yet again, you know, the beautiful Himalayas and prayer flags and Oh, and even the flip side of, of people, it's one of the poorest countries in the world and there's a lot of imagery that comes out of these countries that, that tells a narrative that isn't necessarily the complete narrative. So there's a lot of images of, of poverty that come out of Nepal. And what we wanted to show is not the, the tourist uh, mountain climbing aspect of Nepal, not, not the spiritual traditional aspect, but the incredibly powerfully wonderful and exciting contemporary art that was happening in Nepal and a new generation of artists who are so hungry for the country to transition into a more modern space for them. Uh, so we picked an area called Patan, which is incredibly traditional and beautiful and, and, and visually stunning and all the things that you sort of think of when you think of Kathmandu and an old town in Kathmandu. But we worked with a dynamic new art space called Carlo 101. Uh, that is an open, accessible space where they really want to have deep and meaningful conversations that aren't happening in other parts of the creative landscape of the city. And they were the most phenomenal partners that we could have hoped for. And what we did is, of course, with permission from the community and many uh, community conversations and discussions, we found a series of laneways um, throughout this beautiful town. And what we do is we bring together a series of international artists, some who attend and some who send their work digitally. So we also wanted to make the platform very accessible to artists who might not have the money to fly to Kathmandu and be part of it. So they have the option to attend or to send their artworks and we install them for them. And then we also worked with a range of local artists who uh, did a series of different um, artworks which range from installation to projection mapping to more traditional spray or wheat pasting uh, to murals to live performance. And over a period of two weeks, uh, we transformed these laneways into free accessible open-air galleries with the overriding theme of empowerment. And that uh, idea of empowerment could range from the empowerment of women. So, again, we did our Women on the Wall project. And the idea behind that mural was water and the essential nature of water and how it affects women's lives uh, for them and around the world. Uh, and then we also uh, looked at the empowerment of the LGBTQ plus community in uh, Nepal. And also for the empowerment of artists in general, having the ability to have these open discussions in a community that's still very traditional. Uh, and part of uh, the Macro Galleries program this time around, for the first time we ran an artist residency, which was a huge leap for us, where we invited 
11, I believe, 11 uh, international artists and four local artists to come together for 10 days. And it was an incubator-style artist residency where uh, it was very structured and they had a program of upskilling and creative development events which culminated in a public art outcome for a community in an area called Nakabehil. And the theme of that residency was climate disruption. So something that's been emerging recently in all of the spaces that we work in is that these countries are going to be the most significantly affected by climate disruption, and they're already seeing those effects in many ways, and yet they have the least amount of information, access to information, policies in place quite often, resources to make change, adaptation, mitigation, and very reliant on external international sources for information, funding, and change. And so we wanted to really explore the idea of art being used as a medium to um, not only inform a local community of something that was happening to them, but uh, perhaps inspire and create a more exciting way for them to learn about it, but feel empowered to make change themselves. And so the outcome of the residency was um, an immersive interactive art installation that was um, created and managed by all of the artists involved for the community and with the community. And by the end of the project, we sort of went from the community standing around looking at us all in befuddlement, wondering what on earth we were doing and why we, there were a lot of questions asking, why would you spend your time doing this? Like, shouldn't you go and get a better job or something? <laughs> Just absolutely puzzled. And then it sort of went to this this hedging curiosity where they'd sort of sidle up and ask if they could start painting what we were painting or ask what we were doing exactly or could they be involved all the way through to the end where they were with pride on opening night as you know I think about 500 people walk through their community were standing there with pride watching it all happen and then when we left uh packed up and 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 left they actually came out and asked if they could keep some of the elements and redecorated their lane and transformed it themselves using this idea of making it into a bit more of a green space and seem to be much more aware of the subject. And we have one of our artists actually going back soon to touch base with them again and find out if there was any ongoing resonance in the idea behind the residency. But that was probably in some ways the most exciting outcome of Kathmandu to, to see that art really could communicate such an intangible, complex subject that's very soaked in data to people who had no real awareness of it whatsoever in a really exciting way that I think is going to make a small change, which is what we're all about. Yeah, wow. Oh, great example. And I look forward to hearing about what that community did when you find out. And yes, now you know. I want to ask you to to finish it's a hard question oh, brace pretty. yourself <laughs> um, yeah. um what does success look like in 10 years for micro galleries mm, uh, that's a fantastic question uh i feel like it's i will answer it i feel like it's hard to answer because success so far has been so dependent on so many other people contributing and volunteering their time to a project like this, all of the phenomenal artists and creatives I work with as well as the community. So I feel like they're the reason everything has been successful to date. 
But from an incredibly rational and logical point of view, success looks like micro galleries being uh, in an innovative way, financially independent uh, and sustainable, therefore, so that we have the time and resources to not only put on these projects and and enter these communities and, and collaborate in these ways, but have the time and resources to be able to strategize in a much more lateral, deeper and more meaningful way. And I feel like so many not-for-profits or independent organizations are so stretched for resources, so stretched for time that we can never go deep enough to make the real impact we truly want to make. So whilst we're madly trying to be artistic directors and curators and and cultural communicators and environmental warriors, while we're doing all of these phenomenal things, uh, we're, we're trying to find the time as well to strategically become much more entrepreneurial so that we can continue to deliver a project like this, not burn out uh, and, and not get to the point where we're so strained for resources that we can't continue on. I like that. I think that's a really rational answer. Uh, I think it's a very non-sexy response that is essential, actually. So, yeah, I, I, I feel like micro galleries being able to go into the, the depths of dangerous spaces and places and bring meaning to some of the most vulnerable in our community, um, the people on the move, the, the people who are suffering from mass displacement, internal and external displacement from their countries, is a new area we're going to be looking at over the next 12 months. And so I, I feel like having the resources to go into uh, spaces like refugee camps in a, in a meaningful uh, and immersive way um, would be phenomenal. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's so important. And and having spent most of the last few years working in the not-for-profit um, and social enterprise space, sustainability is the most important consideration for you and it's irresponsible to be Absolutely. to be focused on anything else really um long-term sustainability is critical i think it's mo- yeah i really agree with that and i honestly think it's mostly irresponsible to the phenomenal artists who you know already don't get paid much already have sacrificed so much and continue to generously give their time and their creativity to a project like Mac- micro galleries amongst so many others but also probably more importantly the communities who we've created these wonderful connections with and, and made commitments to to deliver fantastic projects to, that's really our, our priorities, to deliver on the things that we said w- that we would and continue to be able to do so. And I do agree with you. I think it's irresponsible to, to think any other way. Yeah, absolutely. What a nice note to end on. Thank you so much, Kat. You have been awesome. Your work is so inspiring. And I know that so many of our listeners will um, be so inspired by what you're doing. So thank you so much for chatting with me. Thank you so much for thinking that what we're doing is interesting and, and delving into it. It was a really great chat. Thank you. Thank you.